Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast. Listen in as your host, Jimmy Atkinson, invites industry leaders to share their best OZ insights and investment strategies. From market updates to fund launches, policy news, tax mitigation strategies, and more, we cover it all here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. So uh, this segment is going to be Opportunity Zone Investing Trends. Uh, Paul St. Pierre is a wealth advisor with PSP Advisors, uh, has a lot of Opportunity Zone expertise, has been on panels all over the country and has written for Opportunity Zone Magazine in the past as well, I believe. And uh, John Sharetti is with Novogradic, which is the professional services firm that that I, I don't think there's a professional services firm out there that has more Opportunity Zone experience and expertise than Novogradic does. And um, <clears throat> Novogradic has a qualified opportunity fund survey that they do to try to corral all of the data around opportunity zones and just exactly how much equity has been raised by all of the different hundreds, if not thousands of opportunity zone funds all around the country. So I, I wanted to start there um, with, with you, John. Um, could you share with us how much equity has been raised so far to date? buy opportunity zone funds all around the country. And maybe you can drill into uh, some specifics on, on what type of equity raised in, in what types of properties. Yep, sure. So uh, we've been tracking fundraising since early 19. You know, we don't obviously track all of the funds. Um, we think we're probably capturing 30% um, or more, a little more um, of the marketplace. And right now we're we're tracking sixteen hundred and thirteen funds, and of which twelve hundred and thirty one of those funds have reported fundraising to us. So we think the real total is three to four times what we have in our fundraising report. the uh, The funds that we track are going to be your public funds and funds that we sort of direct survey, but they're all multi investor funds that that we're tracking. Um, through the third quarter of this year, Jimmy, um, our total is $32.6 billion. So we think, you know, we're probably upwards of around $100 billion on the total marketplace. Good. But well, it, that's what I've been telling people that's been over $100 billion for for a little yeah. while. Now. So it sounds like I'm in the ballpark there. I think, I think you are. I think you are. Um, it's interesting. This year, um, we, we've reported that $8 billion has been raised through three quarters. So we're on sort of a $10 billion year, which would be the biggest year. So, you know, we're, we're seeing some downward trends uh, in the last two quarters. So when, what I mean by that is the last two quarters, that'd be the third quarter of this year and the second quarter of this year, there was $2 billion raised um, out of that $8 billion. And so, you know, the first quarter, of um, 2022 and the fourth quarter of 21 were $4 billion quarters. So you're seeing a little downward trend. And when you look at timing in this investment, obviously there's a lot of things that trigger investment. You know, the third quarter tends to be uh, a trigger point because partnerships and the like, um, that's sort of their deadline because the pass-through um, deadline is is uh, through the, the uh, due date of the partnership tax return. Uh, so when you look at this year's third quarter, it was about 20% less than last year's third quarter. So it does anecdotally kind of <clears throat> represent a little bit of a slowdown 
in fundraising. As far as what assets are being invested in, primarily real estate, at least of what we're capturing. Um, 75% of the money is actually targeted to multifamily. I think we're up to like 125,000 units um, in our survey. And so, but, but the, the lion's share of the money is uh, multifamily. Only 8% of investments in our survey are targeted to operating businesses. So, and, you know, I think it tends to be the big funds that we're, that we're surveying. I, I think a lot of operating business investment in this space gets done privately. And a lot of it's smaller chunks over longer periods of time, not these big chunks, you know, for real estate. So, so that's kind of where we are on, on the fundraising and uh, the types of assets that are, that are being invested in. Great. Well, th thanks for laying the groundwork there, setting the stage for us, John. I, I love that survey data. I, I wrote an article about your survey that came out. I'll, I'll link to that and I'll link to the, the survey itself in a minute here in the chat. Paul, I want to turn to you now. Uh, we've got some mixed signals, I feel like, from the OZ marketplace. On the one hand, Opportunity Zone equity raising keeps treading along pretty nicely. Uh, we're on track for, for $10 billion of equity raised this year, according to the Novogratz survey, which would indicate probably really you know 30 to 40 billion, considering how much of the marketplace they're able to capture. Um, but at the same time, it's some... Some someday we may see a slowdown here. There's a little bit of a lag with Opportunity Zone funding in that you know it usually takes place within 180 days of a capital gain event, and with the markets turning down the way they are, and, and a lot more investor uncertainty and interest rates going up and inflation um, rearing its ugly head, and maybe we're in a recession or heading toward a recession. There's a lot of macroeconomic uncertainty. How, how do you put all that into context? Yeah. Um, with respect to to opportunities and investments, and and how how do you consider OZ investments for you and your clients? Yeah, let me let me tie into John's comments. I mean, I'm I'm one of the oldest veterans on the table here on the panel here, but um, you know the the OZ program was created in the Tax Act in the Tax Code, so I consider the QF as just as another tax creature. It wasn't created in the securities laws. It wasn't created in state laws. It's really a creature of the tax laws as John's firm well knows. There's only a couple other tax creatures that preceded it. It's the investment companies of 1940 was the first tax creature uh, in the tax code. The REITs were created in 1960. Uh, the, the business development companies were tacked down in, in 1980 under the 40 Act. And then along comes uh, the QOF uh, bolt-on in, in 2018. The results are ex exceptional. Uh, I was in the REIT market in uh, 1986, 87, before all the real estate developers um, got out of debt trouble and converted into REITs. But before before the growth in the REIT market, it was a it was a backwater business. The market cap of REITs was only about eight or eight or nine billion dollars when I was involved in it, and so these results of capital that's being swept in to the opportunity zone market. You get inflation adjust or whatever. Go back and look at the, the growth of the 40-act companies. Hockey stick, very slow traction and adoption for both the REIT market and the mutual fund market. The results here for the qualified opportunity funds is exceptional when you consider the headwinds. Two years without regulations. Uh, regulations finalized the day of uh, the, the emergency declaration for COVID. Uh, so 
big backwater there. Then we have the COVID years where uh, investment capital, um, you know, sort, sort of that freeze of we don't know what to, we want to do, but we certainly know we got to deal with COVID. And now we're facing a recession, but the numbers are exceptional. Uh, he, I was really impressed by the first IRS, uh, by the Treasury report reporting, you know, I guess John knows $20 billion into qualified funds from tax data. This data is exceptional. So the problem is, or, or the challenge really is, uh, first let's talk about wealth advisors. Wealth advisors manage trillions of dollars for, for of managed wealth. It's the registered investment advisor market. I've carried those credentials for the better part of 40 years of being on the advisor side. So that is the that is the area where we need to do a lot more penetration to educate wealth advisors about how this fits in to investor portfolios. And there's more that comes to the table than just the client and the wealth advisor. This is a sophisticated product. It's not complex. I hear people don't want to do it because it's complex. No, it's a sophisticated product and it should appeal to the intellectual curiosity of the wealth advisors. But I always say, you know, the, the, um, the estate planner needs to come to the table during those discussions. The tax tip planning professionals all need to come to the table. It takes a village to make, to quickly grasp the understanding of how this product works for the clients. I think the wealth advisors are behind the eight ball on this. If you look at many of the wealth of established wealth advisor channels, the big brands, they don't touch anything until the product goes through central due diligence for these wealth management firms. So it's got to go through centralized due diligence. Uh, then it's pushed down to a product on the shelf that the wealth advisors can show. Uh, so keep in mind, we're, we're going against long-term history of this is the way we do it for 20 years, and this is the way we're going to do it for 20 years. So when it comes to alternative investments and things that don't normally sit the box, it takes time to go through the top of the funnel, the wealth advisor companies, due diligence to the product, educate everybody how it works, how it fits in the client portfolio. Unfortunately, it takes time. And I always, whenever anybody asks me, we don't have time to waste. And the wealth of managers to get on board, waste no more time. This program is only open to the end of 2026. So get on board and, and make the program work. I have more to say about it, but I'll, I'll certainly lay some more comments in the rest of the panel time here, Jim. Yeah, well, let's let, let's get uh, John to give a response to that. John, what what do you agree with Paul? There's been a, a kind of a slow uptick from uh, from the RIA and wealth advisory community. Do you agree with that? And why is that? And what's the solution? A slow uptick. It's a slow uptake. It's been been slow. I think oh. I misspoke, but but the the wealth advisory community has been kind of slow to 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 uh, pour energy into the OZ program. Yeah, I mean, I don't, yeah, I think high net worth family offices, the lion's share of investment. Um, although we do have some clients that have that have uh, made their way into the wealth advisory community. Um, and yeah, I think it's, I think it takes time. You know, problem is we don't have yeah, we don't. a lot of time on the back end. <laughs> so, uh, and, and then, you know, sort of being once removed from this sophisticated investment, it's it's uh, 
it's probably a more difficult sale, I would think, because now you have sort of the tax benefits you're explaining on top of your normal economic benefits of an investment. You know, so it takes there's a learning curve and how to sell it. Is there a headline risk there too, given uh, the response that this program received from the media when it was when it was uh, first brought out in 2019? Do do you think that's still a fear for for the wealth advisory community and and also some of these larger institutional players that haven't really come to come to play yet? Yeah, I mean, potentially there could be. I mean, I don't I don't know for sure, but I know there are some, you know, wealth advisors that that you know large wealth advisors that are participating. So that you would think would be just as concerned about headline risk as some of the others. So it's, uh, you know, maybe not. Yeah, fair point there. What, what about other trends that that both of you kind of have your eye on uh, as we wind down 22 and head into 2023, particularly given the current macroeconomic climate um, with respect to opportunity zone equity raising and capital deployment um any trends that that you're anticipating so far to date multifamily has been by far and away the most popular asset class do you, do you expect that to continue or change or or any other thoughts that you may have paul i'll open it up yeah, to you first um yeah i think it's i think there's a lot of upside here one of the comments i really wanted to make if you take the last presentation for example well done i i, I tremble when i have to follow joe Holman. i mean <laughs> she's She's got way more medals in terms of uh, contribution to this industry. But um, when I look at the last presentation, um, you know, these programs, all these funds, all these investment initiatives, they work for taxable investors as well. This is not just for the QOZ investor, for that club. We always say it's the deal, the deal, and the tax benefits are purely upside optionality. And I, I think the industry, to the extent uh, that it can keep attracting even non-OZ capital, because the, there's a fundamental economic premise here. These are great deals. Uh, that's the upside to keep attracting capital to these deals. Um, I think one of the panelists uh, just, just talked about distressed QOZB deals. I've certainly been thinking about it. I'm not afraid of it. It's probably a great opportunity to buy into partly completed projects in OZs without having to take the three years of zero return on a, on a pre-development, pre-shovel-ready project. The wild card is, is gonna be federal tax legislation. We don't know what it is. We don't know when it is. Um, I tell everybody in OZ works, don't pray for it. We, we have a program that works here in the OZ program. There is no time to waste, get on with it. Make this program work. If there is federal tax legislation, I hope it's all positive benefits and not further takeaways. Um, finally, with regards to reinvestment and all the other things, these OZ census tracts expire on December 31st, 2028. It's a hole in the program. There is no identification of what all the, all the census tracts are gonna be after 2028. For those who are thinking of reinvestment, uh, the reinvestment wheel will stop in 2028 unless there's some identification of version two of census tracts. But basically very, very positive about this market. Uh, it's really dollars and deals. How do you raise enough dollars to get the money invested fast enough into shovel-ready projects, dollars and deals? Anybody in this business is trying to balance 
not really difficult challenges is dollars and deals. Absolutely, Paul. Um, yeah, the, the the 28 thing is kind of interesting. You're right that the, the zones technically um, are only in existence through 28. I, I, I spoke, I, 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 I have hope that they're going to get that sorted out. By the way, I was spoke on a panel uh, last month at the OZ Expo with, with a member of um, Secretary Mnuchin's team at the Treasury Department that wrote the regulations. And I won't mention him by name, but you can probably guess who he is. Um, he he mentioned he didn't think that was an issue at all. I think either either it's it's not really going to be an issue for whatever reason, or it's going to be resolved. Um, It'll be resolved. John John Paul brought up um, you know tax legislation possibly pending here. Maybe with our final few minutes here before we get to a couple of questions, um, we just had an election yesterday. We don't know the outcome <laughs> for certain in all the races. It looks like um, the Senate may very well be determined yet again by a runoff election in Georgia. Maybe the Democrats will already gain control b- before we get to December 6th in that runoff election. Uh, meanwhile, on the House side, it looks like um, the Republicans are going to retake the House. But even that's still a little bit too early to call, although it looks like it's a it's probably going to be Republican um, based on the projections that I'm looking at now, probably in the 80 percent, 85 percent range. Um, John, with all that said, if we have a split Congress, assuming that um, we do get Republican House and a and a Democrat Senate, what do you anticipate in terms of that OZ reform legislation that I've, I've already covered um, throughout the course of the event today? Do you think it's going to pass? When do you think it's going to pass? I'm going to ask you to gaze into your crystal ball here. So, so my predictions are uh, a little less accurate than real player politics. <laughs> <laughs> Fair uh, enough. Great caveat. No, I think I know. I, I mean, I think I'm encouraged because I think that. You know, having a split Congress, um, there'll be some interest in the Democrats getting some things done before you're in. Um, I know, you know, we have to have an extenders package um, or some tax title. Likely this would be part of an extenders package, which would be part of a bigger bill. So, I mean, assuming it gets tacked on the omnibus bill or something like that, there'd be some negotiation. I know that in that extenders package, the Democrats are real interested in um the child tax credit not being reduced, um, which is supposed to sort of partially sunset this year. So it's, you know, I think it's important for them to get extenders in if they can do it. And the fact that it's split, you know, this is a bipartisan bill. So I think we're sitting in a good spot that we have a bipartisan bill and a split Congress. And, you know, again, I don't have a crystal ball, but uh, it, it could have been a worse outcome, I think, for us. Yeah, well, that, that was, <clears throat> go ahead, Paul. Yeah, one of the more interesting things in there that I'm focused on is the fund of funds provision. Um, you know, if if we get a fund of funds provision, I would expect a certain element of Wall Street to to uh, come on board in this program to form and run fund of funds. So that's that's further upside if, if that tax bill happens. I think in terms of money flows. Good. Um, I did say Congress was split. I guess I was. I was sort of relaying my thoughts. <laughs> it isn't yet, right? So it's uh, no, it's not yet. It may but end up looks, being red, but it uh, looks like that's probably where we're headed. Uh, about yeah. an eighty percent chance that we end up with a split Congress, but but we, it's too early to call. Still, I was hoping we right. have a I think definitive if, answer. If right it's now. not split, if it ends up red, I think uh, you know there's there probably a good chance nothing happens this year, but it doesn't mean it's dead. You know, so yeah. Well, the, the good news is that in the brilliance of this, um, the opportunity zone. Um, act as it was initially written. Uh, it's it's a bipartisan and bicameral bill, and the and the reform legislation 
that got introduced in April is also bipartisan and bicameral. So yeah. we'll we'll keep our fingers crossed. Hopefully that passes. We got we got a couple more minutes. I wanted to get to to a couple questions here. We've got we've got two questions from Michelle. Actually, Michelle asks, um, how can we get a comprehensive QOZ fund report since there isn't an integrated federal system? Can you anonymize the funds and report out by region? I guess this is a question for John. What, 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 and I just linked to your most recent report uh, in the chat also. Right. I mean, that's so we we publish that twice a year um, and it's on our website. So if you if you linked it, that's that would be the only place I know to get it. There you go. So so, Michelle, check out that link to the Novogratz survey data uh, in the chat there. That's probably as best as we're going to we're going to get with, you know, in, in lieu of a uh, a federal report. Um, Michelle also asked of the multifamily investments that have been made in OZ funds, how many are using federal funds to also create affordable housing. Do you have any insight into that, John? I mean, there are, there are, I don't know the numbers. Um, you know, I'd say the majority are market rate, um, but there are funds that are focused on uh, affordable housing that have done a number of deals. Um, and we have, I lead our Opportunity Zone Working Group, which we have sort of worked through some of the issues in the regulations that we felt we could modify um to help um the investment on the affordable housing front and so we've we've actually spoken to treasury about about these modifications and felt pretty good about the response but we're still sort of waiting for them in the regs but good uh we got time for one more question here from bruce he asks um do the investments in oz funds track roughly the same as the public REIT market. What, what, I don't know if either one of you is tracking um, how OZs are flowing into or how equities flowing into OZs versus the public REIT market. That question's up for grabs for either one of you, if you know. I think there, I, there's a question there about fees. I mean, the, the REIT market is, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars now. It's, you know, 700 billion, whatever the market cap is. It's huge. Uh, they're all um, They're all internally managed. They're not externally managed on the REIT world. So management works for the REIT. They're employed by the REIT for the most part. Very different creature, very different tax creature uh, in terms of the compensation and things like that. Um, I haven't seen anybody put together a fee chart of all the OZ funds, but... Um, you, I would guess that the REIT market would have more stabilized assets. You know, opportunities... Yeah, they don't take development. have to have value-added assets. There's a little more risk and a little more return around it, uh -huh. but... Uh, the REIT markets tend to be stabilized. So, yeah, not, not, not as many opportunistic uh, investments in the REIT market. And and yeah. by, by definition, all of the OZ funds have to be opportunistic. And just to answer Bruce's question, uh, he asked, do we have a chart of investments that outline the funds, fees, and charges? Um, kind of yes and no. So it, it'd be very difficult to put together such a, a chart because the fee structures of these different QOFs oftentimes are so different. Um, there's, there's, it'd be like comparing apples and oranges in many cases based on the different prefs and waterfalls and how they calculate the pref, uh, whether it's compounded or not compounded and over what time period and what type of asset management fee there may or may not be, development fees, acquisition fees. It'd, it'd be very difficult to do. That said, for the funds that are presenting on this event today, we are going to have uh, as much information on each of them as possible in a, an investor deck that we're going to circulate 
to everyone who registered for this event today. We'll we'll get that out probably in the next day or two. So so sit tight there. It's it's uh, easier said than done, but we're we're doing our best to do it. Um, that that's it for our time today, gentlemen. Paul, John, thank you so much for joining today. Really appreciate uh, both of you gentlemen being here and thank you for your leadership in the OZ industry. Thank you, Jimmy, my pleasure. Thank you for uh, inviting us to, to uh, participate on your panel, it's a pleasure. Absolutely, thank you guys. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by Opportunity DB. You can access our show notes by visiting opportunitydb.com forward slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode. 